Good evening. I'm Yvette Moy, and I'm the Director of Public Lectures here at the University of Washington. Our office is housed in the Graduate School. Tonight's speaker, Diane Ravitch, will be introduced by Dr. Mia Tuan, who's the Dean of the University of Washington's College of Education. Welcome, Mia. Good evening, and thank you for joining us. As Dean of the College of Education, it is my great pleasure to introduce this evening's speaker, Diane Ravitch, one of the nation's most outspoken champions and commentators on the state of public education. From 1991 to 1993, Dr. Ravitch was the Assistant Secretary of Education in the administration of President George H.W. Bush, where she was responsible for the Office of Educational Research and Improvement in the U.S. Department of Education and led the federal effort to promote the creation of voluntary state and national academic standards. From 1997 to 2004, she was a member of the National Assessment Governing Board. From 1995 until 2005, she held the Brown Chair in Education Studies at the Brookings Institute, where she edited Brookings papers on education policy. In 2013, Dr. Ravitch founded the Network for Public Education, an advocacy group whose mission is to preserve, promote, and improve and strengthen public schools for both current and future generations of students. Today, she is a research professor of education at New York University and is the author of numerous books, more than I have fingers to count. She has received many honors and awards, most notably the 2011 Friend of Education Award from the National Education Association. Please join me in welcoming our guest, Diane Ravitch. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much. It's great to be back in Seattle. Um, I just learned from a member of your, the Board of Education, Sue Peters, uh, that you have a new superintendent. And it's the current state superintendent of Montana, and she is opposed to privatization of public education. So congratulations on a successful search. And um, I'm going to talk tonight about where we find hope in the era of Trump and DeVos. Uh, and mentioned that it's the leaders, the teachers and teacher leaders in West Virginia and in Oklahoma and in Kentucky are showing us hope. They are so brave. And I can't help but think how hard the legislatures in these states have tried to cripple the teaching profession, how hard they have worked to cripple unionism. They're right, all three of them are right-to-work states, and the teachers have used social media to organize in the absence of collective bargaining and have brought about uh, statewide strikes. So this is quite unprecedented in our day, but I think it's not the end, it's the beginning. And that's a sign of great hope. Now, Trump and DeVos have an agenda. Their agenda is the privatization of public schools by charter schools, by vouchers for private schools and religious schools. Uh, they, their agenda also includes the destruction of teachers' unions. They don't want to have any teacher voice. And also the destruction of the teaching profession. These are the goals that Betsy DeVos has pursued for the past 30 years. Her agenda is right out there. It's the agenda of an organization that she founded called the American Federation for Children. She has supported political candidates around the country who oppose public schools and who want to divert public funds to privately managed charters and vouchers. This is also the agenda of the notorious billionaire Koch brothers. Don't buy any of their products. Go online and look up Koch brothers products and don't buy them. They spin freely to spread the idea that there is no such thing as the common good that consumerism is all that matters, and that we have no obligation to help our fellow citizens through government action. I recommend two books to you. I have to give a reading assignment. Uh, I rev reviewed both of these in the New York Review of Books. One is Nancy McLean's excellent book, Democracy in Chains. Democracy in Chains, the deep history of the radical right stealth plan for America. And Gordon Laffer, L-A-F-E-R, the 1% solution. What the radical right wants is to abolish government programs. It wants lower taxes on the rich. It wants to privatize Social Security, 
Medicare, and public education. The major instrument of the radical right is an organization called ALEC. And if you don't know anything about ALEC, you'll learn about it if you read Gordon Laffer's book, The 1% Solution. The American Legislative Exchange Council. It's been in existence since 1973. It's funded by the Koch brothers, by the DeVos family, and by major corporations. ALEC has 2,000 members who are state legislators. And they go to ALEC meetings in order to get bills that they can carry home and introduce in their state legislature. Uh, ALEC writes model legislation to implement its anti-regulation, anti-government program, and then the state legislators carry them home. If you go to a website called ALEC Exposed, you will see the ALEC model legislation for charter schools, for vouchers, for eliminating collective bargaining, for removing any certification or standards for teachers. ALEC created the template and it spread across the red states. ALEC opposes any form of gun control, any environmental protection, or any government regulations that get in the way of profit-making. Profit Make no mistake, we currently have the most radical right-wing government in office in Washington, D.C. in at least a century. For me, this is very scary. I, I was born uh, before probably everyone in this room. Uh, I was born in 1938, and I lived in a time growing up after World War II where we believed that we were a progressive nation and that while there might be setbacks, we might go two steps forward and one step back, we would continue moving forward and things would continue to get better for more and more people. We're now in, we now have a federal government dedicated to wiping out everything that's happened since the New Deal, uh, rolling back the New Deal and every piece of progressive legislation associated with any administration since the New Deal. We have seen efforts to roll back the rights of workers, to roll back environmental protection, to restructure health care so that more people are left without health care, and to privatize education. Betsy DeVos wants to introduce the free market into education and make it consumer-driven rather than a civic responsibility that the state and local governments are required to make available to all children. Now's the time to remember why our society requires every citizen to pay taxes for public schools, even if they don't use them. Public schools originated in the early 19th century, and their purpose was not to encourage young people to compete for test scores or to prepare for college and careers. Their purpose was to make sure that young people were prepared to be citizens and to have the literacy and the judgment to preserve and improve our democratic experiment into the future. And what does it mean to be prepared to preserve and improve our democratic experiment. What are the responsibilities of citizenship? First, you need to know how to read well enough to vote wisely for our leaders. Second, you need the knowledge of government, of math, of science, to understand the issues that we confront as a society and to protect yourself against frauds and con artists who make false promises. Third, you need the judgment to serve on a jury if you're called to judge someone accused of a crime. And fourth, you need the civic knowledge to pitch in and help your community when you are needed, even to run for office yourself. Those are the basics of democratic citizenship. Notice that none of those responsibilities require that you get a high score on a standardized test. They do require that you're ready and able to vote, to use your independent judgment, and to do what is helpful to your community. Why do we have public education? A conservative friend of mine once tried to justify privatization. He said, anything that has the adjective public in front of it is second rate. He said, why would you take public transportation if you could drive your own car? Why would you live in public housing instead of a private house? I responded, why do we have a public police force? Why do we have a public fire department? Why do we have public beaches and public parks and public highways and national parks? These are all part of the responsibility of government. Whatever is public must be available to all not just a set aside for the poor, because once it is marked for the poor, it is stigmatized. We can't allow the Koch brothers and the DeVos family to do this to public education, which is what they are about. Every citizen pays taxes to support public education, even if their own children attend private schools. Every citizen pays taxes to support public education, even if their own children are adults, and even if they have no children at all. Public education is a civic responsibility. It is not a consumer good. Jeb Bush said at the Republican convention in 2012 
that people should choose their school the way they choose a carton of milk in the supermarket. Do you want a 4% uh, whole milk, 2% milk, 1% milk, fat-free? Do you want soy milk, almond milk, chocolate milk? The choice is yours. Betsy DeVos said that choosing a school should be like a choice between calling a taxi or calling Uber. These are the words of people who are elites, who've never lived in a town or village or city where the public schools are the anchor of the community. These are the words of people who look on public services of all kinds with contempt as beneath them. In the past decade, Washington State has been a battleground for the future of public schools. The advocates of school choice know that Washington is not yet fertile territory for vouchers, so they've pushed hard for charter schools. The charter lobby has promoted four state referenda on charter schools. They lost in 1996, they lost in 2000, they lost in 2004, and finally in 2012, they squeaked past the voters by only 1%. Billionaires Bill Gates, the family of Jeff Bezos, Nicholas Hanauer, Reed Hastings, Paul Allen, Steve Ballmer of Microsoft, and a bevy of other uber-rich donors gathered together a war chest of many millions of dollars to defeat parents, teachers, school boards, the NAACP, and the League of Women Voters. Big money won. But the losers sued, and the Washington State Supreme Court bravely ruled that charter schools violate the state constitution because they're not public schools. They do not meet the requirements of common schools with an elected board as specified in the state constitution. The billionaire charter lobby then tried to oust the judges on the state Supreme Court, but they were easily reelected. And the battle goes on. Big money in politics is fundamentally undemocratic. It violates the principle of one person, one vote. The poor man's vote counts the same as the rich man's vote, but the rich man can spend $10 million on advertising to get what he wants. And if that doesn't work, the rich man can make political contributions that drown out the vote and the voice of the poor and the middle class. And this is not right, it's not fair, and it's not democratic. Washington State today is funding 10 charter schools with 2,500 students using money from the lottery since the state Supreme Court ruled that they cannot use the general school funds. The friends of Bill Gates and the legislature are very concerned about those 2,500 students but they have not given an equivalent amount of attention to the needs of the state's one million students. The legislature's devotion to 2,500 students is touching. But please note, please note that these students represent less than 1% of the students in the state. To be exact, they are one quarter of 1% of the students in the state. And I've been told by some of my colleagues and allies that once a legislature begins to talk about ch charters, they never talk about anything else anymore. So hopefully that will change right here in this state. Instead of spending millions and millions of dollars to fight for public funding of privately run charter schools, why don't the billionaires simply pay the cost of these 10 schools? That would be easy for them. Let's, let's be clear here. The goal of the billionaires is to make sure that the public funds privately managed charter schools. They could easily pay for them, but they want you to pay for them. That is what they've accomplished in other states where money is taken away from hard-pressed public schools to pay for charter schools that get to choose their students and to kick out the ones they don't want. According to the Civil Rights Project at UCLA, charter schools are more segregated than public schools, even in districts that are already segregated. In the South, charter schools have become white flight academies, or they are all black. Typically, they enroll fewer students with disabilities, and this is true across the nation, and fewer students who are English language learners, and they're free to push out the students with low test scores. Charter schools across the country have experienced major scandals. Charter frauds are common in California, where privately managed charters have no oversight or accountability. Each one is its own school district, and the state simply cannot oversee 1,000 separate charter schools. They're, the scandals are common in Ohio, where the largest for-profit virtual school just collapsed after nearly 20 years of inflating its enrollment, making campaign contributions to influential politicians, and collecting over a billion dollars in public funds. Scandals are common in Florida, where members of the state legislature have financial connections to charter chains and conflicts of interest. In Arizona, nepotism and conflicts of interest are not prohibited in charter schools. In Michigan, Betsy DeVos' state, 80% of the state's charter schools operate for profit and get poor results. 
The charter industry in Michigan skims $1 billion from the state's funds for public schools every year. You may recall, if you saw it, when Betsy DeVos was on 60 Minutes and Leslie Stoll asked her what happened to Michigan's academic performance, and Betsy said she didn't know. She lives there, but she had no idea. Um, she did know. She knows. Michigan has seen a steady erosion in its performance on the national test called the NAEP, the National Assessment of Educational Progress. In 2003, it was in the middle of the pack, but by 2013, it had fallen to the bottom 10. The decline in academic performance affected students in every demographic group, every racial group. Under DeVos's leadership, Michigan embraced choice and academic performance has suffered. Choice in Michigan has disrupted public schools and reduced their funding. With a Republican governor and legislature, Michigan decided to intervene in low-performing, high-poverty, usually all-black districts. It dissolved the elected school boards and replaced them with emergency managers. The emergency managers, managers turned the districts over to for-profit operators, and in every case, the experiment with charter schools failed because the for-profit operators left when they realized they couldn't make a profit. If it were up to DeVos, Michigan would have vouchers as well as charters, but the state constitution prohibits the funding of relig religious schools. DeVos and her husband got a referendum on the state ballot in the year 2000, but it was defeated by voters by a ratio of 69 to 31%. Vouchers have been put to a vote in 20 state referendum, and they have failed to pass every time. The latest voucher research shows that children who enroll in voucher schools actually lose ground academically. Their scores go down, probably because they have uncertified teachers. Furthermore, voucher schools are not required to follow federal anti-discrimination laws. They can exclude students based on uh, special education status, on race, religion, and LGBT status. They can teach creationism, not science, if they so choose. Milwaukee is a textbook example of what happens when you have all this choice. Milwaukee has had charters and vouchers and public schools for more than 20 years. All three sectors get the same terrible results. Black students in Milwaukee have test scores equivalent to black children in Mississippi and Alabama. It really is a demonstration of what happens when everyone competes for one pot of money instead of everyone getting together and supporting public schools. Tennessee is another Petri dish for the charter industry. Tennessee got $500 million in Arne Duncan's race to the top funding. It used part of that money to create what was called in Tennessee the Achievement School District. The state hired a high-profile charter operator from Houston to run the Achievement School District. He invited charter operators to take over the schools in the lowest 5% of academic performance, most of which were based in Memphis. And he promised that within five years, the lowest-performing schools in the state would be in the highest 25% in the state. Five years later, not one of the original schools in the ASD experienced dramatic improvement. All of the original cohort were still on the lowest 5%, except for one, which is now on the lowest 6%. That's not a lot of progress. For five, I forget how many hundreds of millions they spent on that. This idea of clustering low-performing schools in a district and handing them over to charter schools failed in Tennessee, but so-called reformers are doing the same thing in Nevada, North Carolina, Georgia, and other states. The Achievement School District in Nevada is now all charter schools, and they are the lowest performing schools in the state. Uh, one might ask, why would you want to replicate failure? Um, but that's an obvious question, and it never gets asked. Study after study has shown that charter schools, on average, do not outperform traditional public schools, and many are just plain awful. In Ohio, for example, the charter schools perform far worse than the public schools. Why do the billionaires refuse to look at evidence about poor academic performance, hypersegregation, lack of accountability, widespread graft and fraud in the charter sector. I don't know. I'm guessing that they're surrounded by yes men and women, and I'm guessing that they never admit that they were wrong. They just keep pushing forward. They have been spectacularly wrong when it comes to their interventions in education. I've visited Seattle several times in the past eight years. Uh, when I was being introduced, I, I, you probably heard the reference that I served in the first Bush administration, which is true, and I've spent years uh, trying to correct all my errors. <laughs> um, for and while I was in charge of, of uh, pushing for voluntary state and national standards, I've actually, in the latest iteration of 
my 2010 book, said that standards don't address the most basic problem in American society, which is poverty. Now, as I said, I've visited Seattle several times, and in the past, I've tried to meet with Bill Gates, but he was never available. Sometimes I think he actually left town. <laughs> I thought it was important for him to hear from someone who is not on his payroll, but he won't meet with me. And since I can't meet with him, I'm going to address his errors and hope that someone here will tell him what I said. <laughs> and I hope someone here works for him. That would be even better. Uh, but maybe someone will see the, the broadcast. I actually have some very good ideas for him, and I want to share them with you tonight. He's failed so many times that I think he needs an honest assessment, and that's what I'm going to give you and give him. He continues to be a zealot on the subject of charter schools, despite their disappointing results over the past 25 years. He should stop investing in a failed idea. The evidence is there if he cared to see it. He wasted hundreds of millions, perhaps billions, pushing the idea that teachers should be evaluated by the test scores of their students. This turned out to be a useless and even destructive plan of action. The American Statistical Association said in 2014 that this was the wrong way to evaluate teachers, but Bill Gates ignored them. Who are they? Just the American Statistical Association. They're not billionaires. It is well known among social scientists that the biggest determinant of test scores is not individual teachers or even schools, but the home environment of students. If they come from a home with educated parents, if they have food security, if they have medical care, they're likely to do well in school. If they lack those advantages, they're not likely to do well in school. Being homeless and experienced childhood trauma has a negative effect on test scores. Big surprise. But Bill Gates just doesn't want to hear this. So I hope that he gets the word. The biggest result of his investment in teacher evaluation by test scores is to privilege teachers in affluent communities and to stigmatize those who teach children with disabilities and students who are learning English. Arne Duncan, too, loved the idea of evaluating teachers by test scores, and he required states to adopt this way of judging teachers if they wanted to be eligible to get a slice of the nearly $5 billion that he had in Race to the Top funding. At the urging of Gates and Duncan, almost every state adopted unsound measures to evaluate teachers, which had no evidence. The net result has been teacher shortages and demoralization. Students are not randomly assigned to classrooms, and test scores reflect who is in the class, not teacher quality. The evaluations did not show what Bill Gates or Arne Duncan wanted. They wanted to blame teachers for low test scores, but in New York State, for example, 94% of all teachers were found to be either effective or highly effective. In the state of Florida, 98% of teachers were found to be either effective or highly effective. Who are you going to fire when 98% are effective or highly effective? Well, that didn't work out. So Bill Gates had another plan. He invested hundreds of millions, maybe a billion or more, in the Common Core. He believed that if students in every state learned the same things at the same time and were tested in the same way, everyone would get smarter at the same rate. He believes in standardization because that's the basis of the computer industry. He once explained that schools needed standardization because standardization enables everyone across the nation to plug their appliances into the same electric plug and get energy. What he doesn't understand is that children are all different. They are not toasters. <laughs> you can't plug them into a common curriculum and expect everyone to learn the same things at the same pace in the same way. If Bill Gates is looking for a model of a successful public school, I'm sure there are many in the state of Washington, he really should stop saying that our schools are obsolete and our students are failing. It's not true. I suggest that he investigate the programs at the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. Only days after a horrible massacre, the students at this school began to organize, and in less than six weeks, they produced a remarkable national demonstration in Washington, D.C. that drew close to a million people, accompanied by nearly 1,000 other demonstrations across the nation and around the world. These are our kids today. They're smart, they're articulate, they're poised, they're self-confident, they're eloquent. They went on national television and they made more sense than most of our elected officials. <laughs> they faced vicious criticism and they laughed it off. Well, what are they doing at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School? It's a public school where only a quarter of the students are poor. Isn't that sad that I have to say only a quarter of the students are poor? In most American schools today, half of the kids live in poverty. 
In some schools, the overwhelming majority live in poverty. And what is the single most significant cause of poor academic performance? Poverty. I wish Bill Gates knew that. Some billionaires don't want people to know that poverty is the root cause of poor academic performance. If everyone knew that, they might want to tax billionaires to help children and families in need. <laughs> they might even want to raise the minimum wage. The elites don't want to talk about poverty. They prefer to talk about privatization. It's so much cheaper than doing anything about poverty. We've heard the same refrain for 35 years. Kids today are not as good as they were. Schools today are not as good as they used to be. And I say all of that is simply hogwash. Next time you hear a legislator or political candidate say this, invite them to take the eighth grade math test and publish their scores. <laughs> I promise you that kids today know far more than my generation or any other generation that preceded them. Uh, when I served on the National Assessment Governing Board, I used to read the questions and review them and point out that some of the questions had two right answers and some of the questions had no right answer, and the smart kid would choose the wrong answer. Um, but what I discovered was I could do that for the reading test, the national reading test. I could do that for the national civics test. I could do it for the national history test. When it came to math, we had fourth grade, eighth grade, and twelfth grade. I couldn't do the eighth grade questions. And I thought, wow, I can't believe that kids in eighth grade are doing this. We, we didn't, I didn't do that when I was in eighth grade. Um, the schools have changed. And I would love to see the politicians who rant about our kids today take the eighth grade test and publish their scores. The kids who are right, it's the adults who are a problem. The kids are not taking payoffs from lobbyists and special interest groups. Too many grown-ups are. The kids are not for sale. They're sincere. They're too young to be cynical. Revolutions are not made by the old, but by the young. They're idealistic, and they have energy, and they inspire us. So what do we do in this age of Trump and DeVos and the push to ruin our government? We get busy to protect our democratic institutions. We make sure that everyone gets to the polls to vote. We vote, out, we vote our elected officials out of office if they continue to divert funding from public schools to charter schools. We vote them out of office if they do not adequately fund the public schools that enroll 90% or more of our children. If I lived in Washington State, I would camp out in Senator Patty Murray's office and ask her why she approved legislation that preserved the most obnoxious features of George W. Bush's failed No Child Left Behind Act. I would ask her why the federal government requires every public school to test every child in grades three through eight when no other nation in the world does it. I would politely suggest that we follow the examples of other nations where ch children are tested once in elementary school, once in middle school, and once in high school. Or in the case of Finland, which was recently recognized as the happiest nation in the world, there's no standardized testing at all. <laughs> I would ask Senator Murray, who's a wonderful senator in most regards, why Congress just gave Betsy DeVos $400 million to open new charter schools across the country just this year. The biggest source of new funding for charter schools is the federal government and the anti-union, far-right Walton Family Foundation, which spends an additional $200 million a year to open new charter schools. That's $600 million, and that's only two sources. There are many more foundations that are doing the same things, but with not as much money. I would ask Senator Murray why she supported any part of the Trump-DeVos agenda, and charter schools are a very important part. I have some ideas for Bill Gates and his friends, and this is what I would like to share with you and hope that one of you take it back to him. They could fund health clinics for pregnant women and their children across the state of Washington. A, a March of Dimes survey showed that we're one of the lowest scoring nations in the world when it comes to providing prenatal care. We're tied with Somalia, if you can believe that. When babies do not receive proper care in the womb, they are likely to have cognitive disabilities or other issues that will harm their life chances. We either pay for prenatal care up front or we pay exorbitant sums for the rest of their lives. Bill Gates and his friends could fund such clinics across the state with pocket change. They could invest in early childhood education in every community in Washington and support the research that encourages every state to offer such programs. Developmentally appropriate play and socialization prepares children to succeed in school and in life. The Common Core academic standards and tests should be banned from early childhood programs. 
They are not developmentally appropriate. Little children are not miniature adults, they're children. They should have a childhood. Bill Gates and his buddies could fund arts programs in every school in Washington State. They can't afford them. They could glory in the orchestras, the jazz bands, the choruses, the dramatics, the visual arts, the dancing, the filmmaking that they sponsored. What a gift that would be to the creative spirit of our children. It would mean far more than the billions squandered on standardized testing in the Common Core. Our nation's vibrant cultural programming is one of our greatest treasures. It deserves to be generously subsidized by wealthy patrons. Bill Gates, Paul Allen, Nicholas Hanauer, and the Bezos family could fancy themselves the Medici's of the 21st century. <laughs> Bill and his friends could underwrite a nurse in every school in the state that doesn't have one. They could make sure that every school has a library that's fully stocked with books and media and staffed by a trained librarian. I could go on with all the opportunities to enrich and enhance the lives of children and teachers and families, but I think you get the point. They should invest in what works to improve the lives of children, not just to raise test scores. They could make Washington State a model for the nation if they put their money into programs that work. I have one more big, beautiful idea. <laughs> one that has been tried and that is succeeding. It's called the Kalamazoo Promise. And I learned about it because two weeks from now I'll be speaking in Kalamazoo. It was funded anonymously in 2005, every graduate of the Kalamazoo Public Schools who has attended at least four years and is accepted by any college or university in the state gets a scholarship that covers 65% of his or her tuition at any college in the state. If they attended the Kalamazoo Public Schools from K through 12, all of their tuition and fees will be fully covered and the program will be funded, say the, the anonymous sponsors, in perpetuity. The Kalamazoo Promise has had a catalytic effect on the schools, students, teachers, parents in the community. Teachers are collaborating to help students. Students are working harder than ever to succeed. They know that if they work hard, they can go to college debt-free. Enrollments in the Kalamazoo Public Schools, which had been declining, have increased significantly. The schools opened the new pre-K program. Parents are involved in their children's work. The graduation rate has gone up. The promise of a cost-free college education for those who persist has created bottom-up energy to improve student success. Why don't Bill Gates, Paul Allen, the CEO of Boeing, and all the other billionaires who pay neither income taxes nor corporate taxes to the state of Washington make a similar promise to the children of Washington State? They can afford it. For them, it's chump change. Stop pushing charters. Stop pushing test-based teacher evaluation. Stop pushing the Common Core. Instead, create the Washington State promise for every student who finishes high school. They have little to show for the billions that they've poured into charters and teacher evaluation and testing. If they ran their businesses like they run their theories about school reform, they would all be bankrupt by now. Whatever the billionaires do, we the people must coalesce to resist the Trump-DeVos privatization agenda. The only way to defeat that agenda is to stay informed and to become an active part of the resistance. You must fight for public education if you want to keep it. I recommend that you join the Network for Public Education. It's free. Uh, we have members in every state, and whenever an important bill is coming up, we're able to send out an email blast and produce thousands of emails to legislators in every state in the country. Join the Washington state groups that are fighting for public schools, like the Seattle NAACP, the NAACP Youth Coalition. If you're a teacher, join the Washington BATS. If you're a parent, join Lunch and Recess Matter. Find a group and help it get better. We know how to make schools better. Even Bill Gates knows. Make them like Lakeside Academy. <laughs> make sure they have experienced teachers in small classes. Guarantee that every campus is beautiful and well cared for. Guarantee that every school has the arts, the drama classes, the music programs, the robotics, and a full curriculum in history and literature and science, foreign languages and math. Make sure that schools have the social services that students need, including a school nurse and social worker. Do what Finland does, provide free meals for all children in school. Make sure that there's a recess for free play after every class. That's what they do in Finland. There's a break after every single class for recess for free play. Trust teachers to write their own tests. They know their students. Throw out the standardized tests unless they're needed for diagnostic purposes. One other thing that Finland does, there's no tuition for higher education. It's a nationwide Kalamazoo promise. There's no tuition for graduate school. When I visited Finland, I asked, not even for medical school or law school, and I was told, education is a basic human right. 
People should not have to pay for a basic human right. So you see, we have a lot to fight for. We should not be discouraged. We should be energized. We should be energized by the, first of all, the total failure of everything that's called reform. Uh, but secondly, by the inspiring examples of people who are resisting, who are fighting back, uh, be they teachers or students or both. We should be energized by the activism and the courage of those in red states that are fighting. They said enough is enough, and they're fighting for their students, for their profession, and for themselves. Now, somebody put a few papers in here, which I have to go through to find the rest of my speech. <laughs> ah, there it is. We must protect public education. We must protect the public sector on which all of us depend. Taxes are the price we pay for civilization. We must defend the liberal arts in school and in higher education. We must not allow a small number of very wealthy people to use their vast wealth to buy elections, to impose their will, and to undermine our democracy. There is so much work to be done, and we must roll up our sleeves and do it. Thank you. My name is Joy Williamson-Lott. I'm a faculty member in the College of Education here at the University of Washington and also the Associate Dean for Graduate Programs. And I am going to be moderating the question and answer portion. I would encourage you to take advantage of the fact that Diane Ravitch is here. You can ask her about her talk, about her previous work, her previous experience. So I'd encourage you to ask questions uh, in that vein. And I'll start over here. Hi, Dan. I'm Melissa Westbrook. I write a public education blog here in, in Washington State, and I'm a member of the NPE. Um, I'm going to do a lecture tomorrow. I wrote on your blog about um, educational equity in charter schools. And I was going to talk about the issue of segregation, which you mentioned tonight. And one quote that struck me is um, a, a spokesman from the National Charter Association said that if parents are choosing the schools that are the best fit for their children, then it's not segregation. And I'm just wondering what you think about is going to be the outcomes if we continue to see this segregation happen in traditionals, but very particularly in charter schools. Uh, you know, what I'm reminded of when I hear this, uh, th this kind of mantra about if, as long as children are choosing, everything's fine, and it doesn't matter what happens, I'm reminded of where the idea of school choice came from. Uh, it originated after the Brown decision in the southern states. And the southern states did not want to desegregate. And so they tried to just not do anything at all. And when that didn't work, uh, they had, many of them adopted school choice plans. And they said, well, we'll just let everybody choose. And the white kids will go to the white schools, and the black kids will go to the black schools, and everyone will be happy. And that would, re that would preserve segregation. And the, it would then become de facto instead of de jure. Uh, but the courts kept striking these plans down. and. Uh, when the uh, Elementary and Secondary Education Act was passed in 1965, there was real money that the federal government had to say, we will withhold the money unless you actually desegregate. We want to see the numbers. We want to see the numbers of faculty where black and white faculty are teaching in the same school. We want to see the numbers of students. And that had a catalytic effect on southern <coughs> schools. Uh, they had to desegregate. But school choice, the term, was stigmatized for many years to come. And no one ever used that term until fairly recently because school choice meant, I want racial segregation. And we have to remember the history of that term when we hear it used and when people say, oh, it won't really matter because parents know what's best for their children. We can see what's happening in, uh, now with school choice where it is creating more segregation and charters can choose their students and they can kick out the students they don't want. Uh, and it's, it's simply a circling back to the late 1950s and early 1960s before the court said, you can't do this. Hi, Shannon Ergun. I am on the executive board for both the Washington Bats and the uh, National Bats. And uh, my question is around the idea of the Kalamazoo Promise. And while I think that's awesome, and um, I love the idea of doing it here in Washington State too, uh, I'm concerned about the number of kids that are being encouraged to go to college when we're seeing such a massive deficit in many of our trades and so many other professions. How do we encourage kids and c the community to value those professions as much as we value a college education that isn't getting kids to the place that we we need to right now in our society. 
Well, I, I should mention that the Kalamazoo Promise also covers the cost of any post-secondary education, including trade schools, so that the student who decided that they wanted to become an, uh, an electrician or a carpenter or learn some other specialized trade would also have their full tuition covered. You said you uh, didn't know why Bill Gates uh, keeps supporting failed ideas. And I, I think I do know why. Um, uh, but the possible exception of Nick Hanauer, uh, all of the names you, uh, you mentioned uh, are all have a very much anti-union uh, agenda. And uh, this is uh, a, a great exercise in, in union busting. And would you agree? Well, I would certainly agree, because more than 90% of the charters in the US are non-union. And in cities where there are unions and charters open, uh, it's, a, it's a beachhead for union busting. And there are just not enough scabs to fill all the schools, I guess, fortunately or unfortunately. Um, but I think that when you look at the interest of the Walton Family Foundation, uh, Walmart is not union, not unionized. Uh, it, it took a lot of struggle to get them to pay even a federal minimum wage, which is very low. Uh, I do think that the, uh, the fight for 15 should be carried to places like Walmart, but um, their primary interest and why they've committed a billion dollars to new charter schools is the uh, union busting. And so I'm sure that Betsy DeVos has that in mind as well. Uh, there are very, very few charters that have a union, less than 10%. Diane, I'd love to hear your thoughts on school boards. Uh, and I want to throw a couple of my worries out. Uh, I'm really concerned about school boards that uh, they might be very nice people, but they rubber stamp superintendents' agendas and the legislature's agendas, never question them. Um, I'm wondering about activists who run for school board. How do we get them elected? And uh, realistically, um, what could uh, uh, passionate activist people who do get elected to school boards, what changes could they really get their school district to accomplish? Well, I, I think of Seattle, and uh, my, my good friend Sue Peters is here, and Sue has made a big difference on the Seattle school board. Uh, and I think that one person can make a huge difference because most boards operate by consensus. And so I've noticed, and particularly because I've sort of in my elder, elder years become a rabble rouser, uh, I've noticed that most people just go along. They just, in all kinds of situations, I see these legislatures where they pass bills that they haven't read. I mean, I remember when I was finding out about No Child Left Behind, I interviewed a congressman, and he said, I'm one of the only three people in the Congress that's actually read this legislation. Well, it was a 1,000 pages, but still, in legislatures across this country, people are rubber stamping things, not even knowing what's in them. Um, so there's a lot of that that goes on, and it's not just school boards. But I do think that what happens is that when one well-informed person who's very passionate becomes involved, that person can shake up the consensus. And suddenly people start peeling away and saying, you know, you're right. I never thought of that. So I, I, I do think there's a lot to be said for running for school board, running for the state legislature. I mean, this year, a lot of teachers are running for the state legislature, and I think it's wonderful. Um, because their voices are not heard, and the best way to be heard is to get elected. Uh, I think we have to make more use of the democratic process and not just let the old boys club continue to uh, hog all the, the seats that they've had for so many years. But never, never stop believing that one person can make a difference. Yes. Thank you very much for your talk this evening. My name is Beth, and I work in the admissions office at the law school here. And I wanted to go back to earlier on when you were talking about the um, Bill Gates and, and technology individuals being very fascinated by statistics and algorithms and things like that. I read a book called Weapons of Math Destruction by Kathy O'Neill. And in it, she really talks about uh, how algorithms carry the, the uh, unintended bias or maybe even the intended bias of the individual who develops them, most of them young men, uh, and particularly talks about the impact it had on the Washington, D.C. school district and where it was used to determine whether someone was an effective teacher or not. Uh, and to a devastating effect, because there was one woman who was a very effective teacher, got scored very high one year and the next year not. And they, she started to actually question, what was this that they were doing? And I'd like to hear your comments and thoughts on that, um, the pervasiveness of that. 
Yeah, that's a terrific book uh, by Kathy O'Neill. It's called Weapons of Math, Math, M-A-T-H, Weapons of Math Destruction. And she, I guess, was in the financial industry, and she saw how numbers could be manipulated, and numbers control our lives. Uh, but in D.C., uh, they had a chancellor there who had never been a principal or superintendent, but she was made the superintendent. Her name is Michelle Ray, and she believed that the way to fix schools was to crack down on teachers and to impose a very um, test-based evaluation system where 50% of your evaluation would be based on the test scores of your students. You have to understand that there are always consequences when you make numbers your goal. And the, uh, what I would recommend to you if you're not aware of it is something called Campbell's Law. And Campbell's Law is an axiom that was devised by a social scientist in the 1970s where he said that when you put too much emphasis on a measure, and you make the measure your goal. You corrupt the measure and you corrupt the goal. So when you say that test scores are what schooling is all about, people will cheat, people will game the system, people will inflate the numbers, they'll do all kinds of things because their job is riding on it. And we've had uh, many cheating scandals uh, because teachers wanted to get the bonus or they were afraid of being fired. And that's Campbell's Law in Action. We have uh, because of, I think, that we've had sent basically for the last 20 years or more a misguided approach to education. Uh, that is that test scores are the goal. And consequently, everything has been distorted to make those test scores. And Washington, D.C. just had a major scandal. Well, they had a major testing scandal in 2011 that was swept under the rug. But they just had a major graduation rate scandal where it turned out that after uh, they found that one school had said, well, 100% of our kids graduated. It's a miracle last year. Hardly anyone graduated. And at first, NPR celebrated, then it was wonderful. But then NPR came back, circled back, and said, well, wait a minute. Let's check the numbers. Because teachers began contacting the reporter and saying, we're graduating kids who ha don't have any credits. We're graduating kids who just walk across the stage but never did the work of being in high school. So there was a major investigation of the school system. and it, turned out that a third of the kids who graduated last year were not qualified for a diploma. They didn't have the credits and they had, uh, but, but the government had set the goal, you will raise your graduation rate. And so schools are now relying on these uh, credit recovery programs where a um, student can fail a course and make up that course in a week in front of a computer. You can't make up a course in a week in front of a computer. It's nonsense. It's crazy. You're just doing yes, no, false, true, false answers, and that's not education. But this is how education becomes distorted and corrupted by trying to meet a numerical goal that has nothing to do with education. It's, um, it's Camel's Law at work. And so every time I hear about a miracle school, I think, let's check into that. And it turns out there are no miracles in school. So as a friend of mine said to me, the only miracles that happen take, take place in church, not in schools. Hi, I'm Steve Nessage. I'm a uh, parent of an eighth grader at Salmon Bay School here in Seattle, and I helped found a group called Washington Voters for Public Education. Thank you for being here tonight, Diane. And thank you for, uh, for mentioning the uh, brief history about charter schools and the attempts to establish charter schools in this state. Uh, I'll just expound on your comments for a minute by saying that not only did that initiative in 2012 uh, I-1240 passed narrowly. It passed by the very smallest margin of any ballot measure in the history of Washington State, and the people pushing it outspent their opponents literally 17 to 1. If they had outspent us by a mere 10 to 1, I think we would have won in a landslide. Uh, However, uh, we have a practical issue here, and I'm asking this question because I want people in this audience to be aware of this. And uh, also, I guess I would like your thoughts on how best to organize around this and what uh, tactics and uh, ideas might be important. Our city council went ahead without legal authority, according to some people, and gave a, a building variance to uh, a charter school uh, company that wants to establish a charter school in the south end of Seattle for both uh, middle school students and high school students. Um, and they did it very surreptitiously and very quickly, which is how the way they always act. And uh, 
I wanted uh, your uh, your ideas about the best way to challenge and to uh, uh, go about this in terms of uh, getting people organized against it. Uh, while it passed very narrowly statewide, uh, it lost by a big, big margin in Seattle. The people of Seattle, the taxpayers of Seattle, do not want charters in our school. And I think the city council and our new mayor are largely tone deaf to this. So I would just like your ideas based on what you know, which is considerable. Well, I'd say that, uh, as in everything else, you need a lot of activism. You have to uh, have boots on the ground, people out in force. And what you're going to see happen increasingly as uh, the effort to establish charters continues is uh, charter chains coming in, corporate cor charter chains. I've heard that Green Dot may be coming to the state of Washington. And Green Dot has not been successful in Los Angeles, but they have big ambitions. Um, and I think you just have to make clear, uh, possibly by running people against the city council members who supported this, that you won't stand for this. And it's not just a matter of, of having massive demonstrations, but field candidates and make the big issue education. We're not going to allow these charters to come in and take away public dollars. And they do take away public dollars. I mean, there's this, some fantasy that there's a fund somewhere else. There is no fund somewhere else. It's all the same pot of money. And they want their hands on that pot of money. So when you begin to see KIPP arriving uh, and some of the other big national charter chains, you'll realize you've lost your democracy. And I think you have to have that sense of urgency that you can't let it start because once it starts, people become very blasé and say, oh, you know, it's KIPP. They, they're just taking a few hundred students and then there's a few. And then you add up the numbers and you begin to see the budget of your own public schools diminishing to take care of them. And I, I was there at the beginning, as I was in most things over the last 30 or 40 years, but I was there at the beginning of charter schools. And the theory of charter schools was that they would cost less because there was no bureaucracy, and they would produce results or go out or close. And the way it's worked out is they don't cost less. They cost the same, and in some states they cost much more because they have higher administrative costs. They pay huge salaries. They don't pay huge salaries to teachers, they pay huge salaries to administrators. Uh, and you'll find charter chains where the head of the chain is making a half million dollars a year. And I assume your superintendent is not making a half million dollars a year. Um, but they cost more, and in most states they are completely unaccountable, and they're non-transparent. So you'll have a hard time just getting information about what the enrollment is, what the attrition rate is. And when, if you were to see, for example, um, part of the propaganda of the charters, is we'll look at the ratings in US News and World Report. And I have friends who have deconstructed the ratings, and they'll say, well, the number one charter in the nation had 11 graduates. <laughs> I mean, we have a charter chain in New York City which boasts that it has the highest test scores in the state. But they just had their first graduating class. They started with 100 kids, and they had 17 kids graduate. And nine of those were low-income kids. So millions and millions and millions of dollars have been spent to produce a graduating class of 17. And so one of the key things with charter schools is the attrition rate is always very high. And what some of the charters do to um, control their population is to not allow new students to enter after a certain grade. So they can be more successful by saying, we take in kids by lottery in the beginning, and then they start weeding them out ruthlessly. And after third grade, no one new can come in. That's called backfilling. It's a new word to me. But I think you have to have a sense of urgency that if you begin to make compromises and if you <laughs> lose this edge, um, I mean, Seattle should be the city that everyone can turn to and say, look at the success that their public schools have had. Look how the public in Seattle, has, the community has gathered together uh, to protect all the children, not just the few in charter schools or those who are, who are ignored and left in public schools. You can't have that. You have to, get, you have to make it a community effort and, ru and run against some of these characters who are giving you a hard time. Thank you. We have time for just a couple more questions. Yeah. So, so my name is Joanna Cullen, and I'm chair of the Seattle King County um, uh, League of Women Voters Education Committee. And I'm going to, I have a question at the end of this. It's not really related, but I do need to address his issue around the 
the departure. So we discovered that there was a meeting about a departure for the high school and that probably the middle school had been granted by the Department of Inspection and Con Construction and Inspection illegally, and they were bearing a, a proposal to the Se Seattle City Council that would allow charter schools to have the same privilege of asking for departures as a Seattle public school. We wrote a letter, and thanks to many other activists outside of us, we got all the information. We wrote a letter to the city council, to the DCI, and they withdrew that legislation that would allow charter schools to have that same privilege. So there, there was activism on that. Uh, what happened with the middle school, I'm not sure if there was an illegal departure granted, but the Seattle City Council did not, act, did not okay it. Um, and my, so my question really has to do with, we're all great admirers of Diane Ravitch, but I notice in, in Washington State, even though we've been very aware of charter schools, that our public universities are truly suffering from public support, and that's been withdrawn, and I feel like our public universities are becoming privatized, and I, I was wondering if you have any thoughts on that. Well, I'm opposed to any kind of privatization, and since I don't have any great insight into the specific legislative uh, activities around higher education, I would just say that that is you know, as I said about the Kalamazoo Promise and also about the um, model of Finland, I think that uh, having affordable and public higher education is very, very important. So that's something that you should fight for. I, I want to just add about something else about charters because it relates to what you were saying in the beginning part of your remarks. One of the tactics that Gates and his buddies have used around the country, Gates and the Walton Foundation in particular, is to try to find ways to get public schools to treat, or to get authorities to treat public schools and charter schools as equals. And so they have introduced in many cities a common enrollment system. So when a, a parent goes to apply to, to enroll their student in the public schools, they're given a list of every school, charter and public, and it's like, they're all the same, it doesn't really matter. And they don't tell you that these, the charter schools are privately managed and you have no rights, they can throw you out, and the public schools open to everyone. The other thing that they've done is to, um, there's something called the Gates Compact, and that is that they, uh, Bill Gates gives $100,000 to a district if they agree to treat charters and public schools on a level field with the same amount of money going to both. And he's just been desperate to get charter schools legitimized. Uh, I don't understand his hostility to public education, but it's there. Yes. This is going oh, to be last, last chance, question. last question. I'm sorry, I apologize. That's okay. Hi, Dr. Ravitch, uh, my name's Pat Robertson. I'm a, a retired Seattle Public School teacher and a proud UW alum. Uh, I'd like your thoughts on what I perceive to be a real push lately for online education slash virtual schools at the K-12 level? Well, they're just terrible. <laughs> uh, I, I, was, I was invited to write an article for a technology publication called Ed Surge, and I wrote about the five risks of, of technology, misuse of technology in the classroom, and there are probably many more than five. Uh, but I think that it's uh, the effort to replace human beings with machines is wrong. Uh, I remember many years ago I was reading something in Forbes magazine. I can't tell you why I was reading Forbes magazine, but it was 1984. And <laughs> the technology editor, the, the, I guess it was because the cover said the coming revolution in education. It was about how technology was going to solve all problems. And that was already six, 35 years ago. Uh, and what the technology editor said was, I don't believe the technology is going to solve all the problems that the people writing for me believe. I think that what will happen is that the rich kids will get teachers and the poor kids will get computers. 
and I believe that. I think there is a concerted effort in rocket ship charters and blended learning and online learning to take the place of human beings and because what, what this is all about is cost cutting and the most expensive component in education is people, particularly teachers who have, had, who have master's degrees and sometimes doctorate degrees. They're expensive, they get more expensive every year, they expect to have healthcare and pensions and machines never get healthcare or pensions. So the best way to cut costs is to cut human beings but the most important factor to me in learning is the interaction between uh, students and teachers, between uh, human beings where the student loves the teacher, respects the teacher, fears the teacher. All of those things work. <laughs> Love, fear, respect. Uh, but that's what gives children the motivation to excel is their connection to the other human being. With a machine, the machine gives you a thing, good job, try again. I mean, that's not a motivation. So I think that the, uh, I don't want to sound like a Luddite, but maybe I am. <laughs> Except that I'm on a machine all day long, so therefore I can't say I'm a Luddite. But I think that this is very worrisome, and uh, there comes a time, and particularly at this juncture in our history, where we, want, we say we're not going to let the machines own us. We, we want to use the machines, we don't want to be used by them. Thank you.